Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, damn, it feels good to be a gangsta, working to interrupt gun-based violence and create positive change. There's more, too much agitators and not enough mediators. Right? Too much instigators and not enough mediators. Right? And we have to get more to that. How can we mediate the conflict instead of instigate every single thing that happens because there's attraction to violence, there's attraction to, to conflict. The commercial stretch of Myrtle Avenue near Fort Greene Park is populated by businesses that seem to be trying to one-up each other with exuberant punny names. There's the Farmer in the Deli and Gnarly Vines. Buff Patty is not a CrossFit gym for women, but a Jamaican restaurant and bakery. And now, between Adelphi and Carlton, there's a storefront with glittering gold tinsel in the windows and an awning that's hard to miss. It says, Gangsta's Making Astronomical Community Changes, Inc., or GMAC. And today we're joined by its founder, Sean Duke McBatter. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that great introduction. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, tell me a little bit about what GMAC is. GMAC is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that focuses on gun violence, criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, and just changing the norms of what has been in our communities for so, so many years. And this is your second location. The original one is in East Flatbush, um, and you call them crisis management centers. Is that right? Yes. This is our second office. Uh, we were funded first by Councilmember Jemani Williams in East Flatbush in the 67th Precinct. When we opened up in 2015, 67 Precinct was one of the top three precincts in New York City in gun violence. Uh, and us being there, it is no longer one of those precincts. Uh, we've had a decline over 30% last year. If you look online, you'll see that the murders have went down. So we were able to expand our services to Fort Greene because of the fact that our work was proven in East Flatbush. And this crisis management center just opened. Tell me why you chose this location specifically. Uh, so I chose the location because I'm from downtown Brooklyn. I'm actually from Whitecourt, Gowanus Houses, uh, and I used to hang out a lot in Fort Greene. And it's a neighborhood that needed the work of violence disruption and conflict mediation. And we had a council member out there who understood the importance of her community, which is council member, Majority Leader Lori Cumbo. And she helped fight with the city council to bring those services to that neighborhood. That was was very important about it because there are a lot of other neighborhoods that need it. But if the elected officials are not stepping up and saying, okay, this work is needed for our neighborhood, then we're not able to go into those communities. So you need advocates and partners who are willing to work with you. Who are willing to work with us and understand what our work is doing, how it's changing the violence in our communities. And tell me the importance of actually having brick-and-mortar storefront locations. You guys are a 501c3. Uh, why don't you just have an office on the fourth story of some office building? Why do you need to be on Myrtle Avenue? Well, we well we went on Myrtle Avenue. For one, it is a high-traffic area. Uh, where we're at is right next to a, a known uh, Chinese restaurant called Hardy's, uh, which gets a lot of traffic. Uh, it's close up the block from Fort Greene, which is actually our catchment area. And we've identified a catchment where we look at violence as a disease, and we want to contain that disease. So we find that area and where these shootings are happening in our communities, it's a small percentage of people who are committing that, those same crimes. So how do we minimize that by working with those individuals and providing services? So having that office there to, one, sit down and mediate conflicts. You know, sometimes, well, most of the time that's what's happening. Conflicts are happening, but they don't have a, 
a comfortable place, a safe space to sit down and talk about the issues and figure out who was wrong and how can we rectify those issues. So having that space there was very important to make that work. And when you say violence interruption and catchment area, are you and the people you work with actually going out into the park or in other areas and like physically interrupting violence? What does that mean and how do you work? Yeah, so... My staff is credible messengers, and what we mean by credible, you know, is individuals who've once been in the streets, formerly incarcerated, affiliated, or been through these same experiences that we're working to change, or have been reformed, mindset change, received different types of training, including Department of Health, uh, violence interruption reduction training, uh, and continue training to help them be able to mediate and, and have conversations that's worthwhile to change the direction of our communities. So our violence disruptors' jobs is daily to walk around the community where they live, right? This is where I grew up at. This is where I was once violent at. You know that I could be being, continue to be violent, but I'm showing you that I'm not. And I'm going to give you a way to not be violent, too, by following these same steps. So just daily, just being out there, just conversing. So when something happens, it's comfortable to bring that information to my team because it's not going to the police. It's going to the team to sit down and figure out how to mediate that conflict, how to stop something from de-escalating. Uh, and that's how the team works daily. And tell me a little bit about how you ended up where you are today. Um, you mentioned that you grew up in the Wyckoff Houses. When did you first get involved in gangs? Uh, so I was first incarcerated in 1994. I was six, 16 okay. years old. Uh, it was a strong arm robbery that I committed, and I went to Rikers Island, C-74. And as a 16-year-old, seeing all the pressure coming from the, the projects uh, and nothing that makes sense to me, that made sense to me. Uh, and everybody becomes part of it differently. And that's what I've learned, right? How to understand why somebody becomes part of something and how we can help them redirect the violence that they're being taught. And was there a turning point for you when you decided that you wanted to chart a different course for your life? Yeah, oh, definitely. I was still incarcerated. Uh, there were two major things for me. I was in Sing Sing Correctional Facility and a mentor who was there for me during my first prison sentence, I was now in my second one, so I did two state bids along with other stints back and forth through Rikers Island. So I say between the age of 16 and 30, which is the last time I was incarcerated, I did about 13 years in installment, so I've totaled up all my time. And that last prison sentence, that mentor for my first prison sentence, we were in the same jail just walking the yard, and he had a child, which was from a conjugal visit. Uh, and that child grew up in the streets without him and knew of his reputation and ended up in Sing Sing with 35 years to life at 17. Wow. And I was there for that exchange. So it was like a sign to me that I didn't want that to be me and my children, which my sons are now, my oldest sons are now 19. I didn't want that to be my story. And what was that exchange like? What happened when your mentor saw his son? He had tears in his eyes. Son was confused. You know, he said, you know, you try to live like me, try to be like me from what you heard about me and look what it got you, got you more time than me at a younger age. And so from then I started to look at uh, prison differently, looked at the things that once I accepted, glamorized that I was okay with and started to really focus on myself first, right? What changes that I need to make for myself? What are the things that were causing me to respond how I was responding and then redirect that and find different methods to deal with my anger? And you're a father. Um, yes. Tell me, tell me about your boys. 
Well, I'm a father of actually six. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh, my older boy is a 19-year-old. Turning point for me, like I said, they're in, still in high school playing basketball. And I have uh, four other babies. And what are the ages? So you're... My, Five, four, three, and two. Wow, okay. Um, so your your oldest sons, uh, twin boys who are 19, yes? Yes. Um, uh, you've, you've written and talked about how when they were little that you, this turning point came for you and you realized that you wanted to be more present in their lives. What are you trying to teach them? Well, I am showing them daily through my actions that one change is possible. Uh, they know of my story. Uh, before me telling them, telling it to them, the community that they come from told them about their father. So they already had this understanding of my past ways and actions. Uh, so now they're proud of how I've changed my life. They also are participants in my program as well. Uh, they work. We have outreach workers that work with us. And my children have their own outreach worker. Because of the time that I was away uh, and the life I was living, I had to take into a, a, a factor that they were traumatized, that they've been through some things, right? And even as a father, I want to make sure they're getting other service outside of me, right? Because there was so much missing while I was away. Do you worry about them as young black men? Do you, do you worry about gun violence? Do you worry about their safety? So my sons are trained to know how to respond to certain things differently because of who I am and, and uh, understanding society. But at the same time, they're young black men growing up in, in our world, especially in New York City, where we're still dealing with uh, people who don't have the same type of mindset or training that they're receiving or support that they have. And then, of course, we're still dealing with a high lack of respect for our communities from law enforcement. Right. So no one's going to identify that they're my children when they're walking down the street and they're, they're, they're black men. Right. Talk to me a little bit about how gun violence has impacted your life personally. Born in Kings County Hospital, raised in Brooklyn. Uh, foster care from a young child. My, my life started like that. And being in the projects, all you see is violence, right? The, the music, the movies. So you grow up thinking that's all life is. Uh, you, you hear about people that are murdered daily, you see it. So it becomes a, a norm for our communities, right? And that's why we're fighting to change that norm. And you had a brother who was taken by gun violence as well. Yes. Um, will you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, a few years ago, there was a concert in Irving Plaza. It was a T.I. concert. And he had a couple of rappers come out from New York City. And there was an ongoing online beef that he and others weren't aware about. Some of us knew of it. And it escalated into a physical conflict at that event. Uh, my brother was shot inside of the green room inside of Irving Plaza. Uh, and, you know, my family has been dealing with that since then. How do you wish that the work, the type of work that you do, um, could have prevented something like that, if not that particular instance, but the work that you're doing, trying to um, redirect uh, conflict and, and make sure that we're not talking about taking a life? How do you hope that the work that you do prevents senseless deaths like your brother's? So I don't hope it do. I know it do. So I could have responded so differently, especially knowing where I come from took a lot to not respond that way. It took a lot to communicate with others to not respond that way and have the patience to allow the wheels of justice to turn to see how that works. There's a lesson in that. Uh, so turning that stone for the people, right? This is 
a method, right? This is a way to cope. How can we find another answer? And people are learning from that. So that's what I want to continue to replicate. How can we look at a scenario, even if it happens, do we have to give the normal response that is expected of us, right? As young black men, we are expected to be violent every time something violence happened to us. So we got to change that norm in our communities. Yeah, I imagine that must have been tremendously difficult for you, uh, like a, your own personal trial of trying to figure out how to fight back against the impulse to retaliate in the way that you had been taught was the norm. There's more, too much agitators and not enough mediators, right? Too much instigators and not enough mediators. Right? And we had to get more to that. How can we mediate the conflict instead of instigate every single thing that happens because there's attraction to violence, there's attraction to, to conflict. And how did you learn to mediate? Did you go to training sessions or do you have mentors um, in how to de-escalate conflict? Yes, all of the above would be the correct <laughs> answer. I've always been a person that was able to reason. Right? Even in my, my negative, I was always always a reasonable person, always a fair individual. Even when I'm in Rikers, I always made sure there was the minimal amount of violence, even when it had to be. Right? Instead of cutting them, I'd punch them in the face. Right. So, for example, uh, yes, for okay. an example, <laughs> then when I was when we talk about army conservated, not anymore. Right. right. Now you don't advocate punching or cutting. No, no. Okay, you know, we got to find a different way. Right. Even then, that was what it was for me. So being able to then come out, look at how I respond to things, how I allowed people responses to aggravate me then, I no longer allow that to happen. Right. So there's different things that I'm taking to continue to educate myself and train myself and help me become better in what I'm doing. I want to talk a little bit about the name. So it's Gangsters Making Astronomical Community Changes, GMAC, great acronym. Thank you. Um, talk to me first about the decision to use the word gangsters. Do you still identify as a gangster? Do you feel like um, you want to make this an inclusive space where people who identify as gangsters and who don't identify as gangsters can come together? Why did you choose to lead with that word? There's a lot of different reasons. Uh, I don't remember when I first told my mother, she said, son, you're not a gangster. I said, yes, ma, I am. Unfortunately, that's what life pushed me to, right? Once you understand what I mean by being a gangster, and it's not about glamorizing, it's recognizing an addiction in the lifestyle that's in our communities, right? And there's ways and actions, how you view things, how you respond, that comes from the gangster mentality. So I said, if I'm going to make a change, I can't come out and say, I'm the good guy making changes. They're like, that is so not true, sir. You're just finished from being incarcerated. You're a gang member. These are all the things they're going to say, right? Also, the individuals like myself who advocated the violence, who has the ability to stop the violence, to identify that this is our call to make those changes. Let's put ourselves in the forefront first, start with us, and let the community follow. So this is all of our work, right? We have to all play a part in the violence and the racism and the injustice in our community, but it starts with us because that's where I know I could put my best experience. Mm -hmm. And the second part, making astronomical community changes. What does that look like and how do we measure success? Oh. You said a high bar, by the way, not just community changes, like, like astronomical, astronomical yes. community changes. Uh, so when you look at a decline in violence, when you look at individuals like myself, you look at the New York City crisis management system, uh, which is one composed of the, a cure violence model, which looks at violence like a, a disease, and then the, the crisis management system created under Mayor Bill de Blasio in the uh, Office of Prevent Gun Violence, which adds components of wraparound services. 
And through these services and everything, we are able to change lives, change mindsets, make communities safer, stop people from killing each other. That's astronomical in a city like New York, right? When we talk about a safer city, it is the constant work of the violence interrupters when there's no cameras, when it's not a high-profile situation, getting out there, talking, building those relationships that change the mindsets that create safety communities. And that's astronomical. So you mentioned that you work with um, city council members, you have allies on the city council, you work with the mayor's office. Do you work with the NYPD? I work with all of those individuals in creating a safer community. We don't exchange information with law enforcement, with NYPD, but we have to work together to have a safer community. But we first have to understand that our work is not about incarceration. Our work is about mediation. So when it comes to law enforcement, we can never understand change in our communities until they start to understand our communities and not look at us because we come from this as still a negative because we still have some that look at us like that, right? Mm -hmm. They don't care what I'm doing. I'm still negative to them, and I still go through those oppressions daily, right? So when we get them to be more of a community-based enforcement, we'll see us be able to say we're working together. What do you wish you could teach the police department? Pitch me a training <laughs> that you're going to do. Oh, yes, so we need NYPD trained by community members, not law enforcement. You can't teach somebody that don't come from our communities how to deal with us. You know, I've recently had a couple of interactions with them, and their their response is negative. It's, it's, I don't even want to hear what you have to say because I'm law enforcement. So, you know, it's about trying to change that, right? And they're supported by a system, and we need to hold them accountable for each other, right? If an officer does something, how can we hold this one officer accountable, right, and show that accountability is coming to our NYPD because there's no accountability when it comes to actions. Not We're not just talking about murders of young uh, black men and women. We're talking about just the fact of a disciplinary action, right? There's never nothing that we see. You can say CCRB and they'll, they'll, they'll load up their file, but when, when are we seeing some real uh, accountability for law enforcement? Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll close out with, do you have any messages? If there's somebody watching the show who maybe is involved in a gang um, and turns to violence as a means to settle a conflict, what message would you have for that person? Mm. In closing, right now as an organization, people think our focus is just gun violence. And I say it's a lot of different things. And it's criminal justice reform, fighting against injustices. Right now, we are dealing with one, MDC Brooklyn, where we were part of organizing with Tamika Mallory, my son Lennon, doing the, the heat and electricity issue in MDC, and we're still fighting to get some response from the Bureau of Prisons. We, we was reached out to by family to a murder inside of Green Correctional Facility. Rest in peace to Anthony Trey Myrie, which was a murder that happened a few days ago. And the correction officers are covering it up, and he was beat, and they said there was water in his lungs. And this is a major case that is not having attention, and we're working on this, because just because we are convicted don't mean we are animals. Somebody like myself who's been through that and was able to overcome that and make changes, you look at, you look at individuals like, rest in peace, Khalif Browder, who didn't make it through that. Our, your, our families go through what happens through the poverty and commit these crimes and then be sent up to state prisons that are ran by uh, whites who don't care nothing about them and there's no communication, there's no close family, and they're killing 
our people in those facilities and it's time for us to really step up and pay attention to this and this is the focus of GMAC moving forward. So we're not just out here stopping the violence in our communities, we're talking about changing what's happening inside our correctional facilities and focus on real criminal justice reform. And let's say the name of that young man again. Anthony Trey Myrie killed in Green Correctional Facility. If you go online, Instagram, Facebook, and look it up, we want everybody to get involved. This is a major case. We are also reaching out to individuals who we know were beat inside of Green, because when we posted, so many people came up and said, they're having to me this year. So we're also trying to get as many people who went through that experience to start documenting it so that we can move forward with action. Tell me a little bit about the expansion of this work and why you think that's an important part of the work that GMAC does. Thank you, good question. We look at things and we work in separate ways in, in, in society, and we need to start attaching the components, right? Uh, if you're talking about violence in my community, it starts inside of, also inside of a correction facility. The pressures of somebody that's inside a correction facility could send that call out to our streets that push somebody to push a button and fire a gun, right? Same difference, vice versa. So whatever the families are going through in there is going to affect somebody in the streets. So we have to also help those who are coming home. Instead of waiting until they come home, start working with them to start changing their mindset. Prison doesn't rehabilitate. You, you, I, I went to prison those many times because I just changed my crime, not my mind. Right? And prison doesn't help you change your, your, your mind. You just talk about how I can be a better criminal. So we need to really look at what's happening inside of correctional facilities to start thinking about the people that are coming back in our communities and not waiting until they're two months into coming home and putting them through a, 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 a fast prep to go home. Mm-hmm. I know I said that was my last question, but I actually have another question. <laughs> um, I'm curious about how you teach boys about what it is to be a man and about how notions of masculinity, about how you protect your people, about how you respond to violence with violence, um, contributes to this cycle. And as, as the father of, of young men, how do we sort of rewrite what it means to be a man today? Mm, that's interesting. We look at young boys as if uh, them having emotions makes them non-masculine, right? Man up. All right, it's okay to have emotions as a young child. Uh, and really getting them to look at life differently. How can we show them the path instead of just talking at them? Uh, when you look at a child, a child asks a question to learn, to know, right? So we have to really think about the mindset of our, our youth and they're still growing, they're still learning. I tell people I have 30-year-olds and 35-year-olds I know that don't got it together at all. How can I have lack of patience or understanding with someone who's young and in their teens? Right? So you have to really look at the fact of also how the brain is growing and the prefrontal cortex of the brain, something I learned in one of my recent classes, how the adolescent brain is, is growing and, and how we respond to that. So there's a lot of different things that I've taken into play where I educate my staff to be able to work with individuals that they're reducing their risk for incarceration and or violence. Sean Duke, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your time. That's the show for today. We're back next time with Two Brick Neighbors, One Old, BAM, which will be hosting the fifth annual Caribbean film series beginning next week, and One New, the Center for Fiction, which just moved to Brooklyn like all your other friends.
Well2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogsag, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Point Zolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 